biblical preaching is. And that's what we're going to do right now. So maybe you've never thought this through, but I want to be more clear on this uh, as we receive from God. This is, and this is interesting because we're going to look today at, at a man named Timothy just for a moment and who he was. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy much later in Paul's life. And kind of in the, in the closing days, he's telling Timothy about preaching to people. What Timothy was doing with his audience, we're going to do here in just a moment. Paul said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. See, this, this is the world of our lives that preaching is intended to engage. I just want, I want to prepare you for that. I don't, you know, when you get in the car, somebody slams the brakes on, you're not ready for it. You kind of end up un, uncomfortably you know, peeling your face off of something. Uh, I don't want you to be uncomfortably peeling your face off something in just a few minutes here. But I, I want you to be prepared. Because preaching is going to feel a certain way to you. And preaching is also going to rescue you from something. You may not have been thinking that. I'm just coming in here and that dude's going to start talking and I'm just going to kind of try and put up with it and hope he doesn't go too long and glad the kickoff is later today. You know, that's how some of us are approaching this. But apparently, there's going to come a point in your life where you're going to turn on Oprah or you're going to turn on Fox News or you're going to turn on the news somewhere or somebody's going to, somebody's going to collect life and serve it up to you. And your ears are going to tickle because it makes sense to you in a way that appeals to you personally. And the Bible says that's not going to be a good thing because it's going to be ideas that don't represent God's ideas. And so right now you've been living all week long. It's 168 hours in the week. You're about to get one hour to compete with 167 other hours where you've been listening and thinking and digesting and saying amen and yes. And I don't know about that. And ooh, that sounds right all week long. Well, preaching is intended to get into your world and mess with it. That's what I'm about to do. I need, you, I need you to give me permission to do that. Because right? this is what it's going to feel like. If I do it right, it's going to feel like this. It's going to feel like some of you are going to feel uh, reproved. Some of you will feel rebuked. I'm gonna, I guarantee I'm going to say something that 10, 20, 30, 40% of the audience at some point is going to feel like, dude, that is obnoxious. <laughs> Why do you go there? Uh, well, I, if, if preaching goes there. Preaching goes, and I, I can be obnoxious all on my own. I don't even have to preach to be obnoxious. I have that ability. But, but preaching goes there. It reproves and it rebukes. It exhorts. It stands in your world and it says, hey, this is hard, but keep going. Step up. Go on. Don't, don't chicken out right here. Keep on. And it's supposed to do so with patience and teaching. Teaching means it's supposed to bring insight into your life. Hopefully I'm going to explain something today that you're going to go, ah, okay, that's, that helps me to see that. It's supposed to be done with patience, right? So I'm supposed to be informed as a preacher that I'm going to share something today and I don't expect that you'll have no more problems in any of these areas by noon. <laughs> that's not how preaching works. You're going to wrestle through and you're going to put these things on over time.
And so there's going to be some adjustments today, we hope, followed by more adjustments, and deal with each other that way. Don't expect that you heard something preached for your husband, that boy, that was crystal clear for him. He'll never do that again, right? Well, you know, uh, with patience, we do all these things. Right? So that's, that's what we're about to do. We're about to engage preaching here. So turn to Acts chapter 16 with me. Acts chapter 16. If you guys are are paying attention, there's all kinds of... This is a time of year when a bunch of movies get released. Thanksgiving and Christmas just load up with all kinds of movies. The next installment in movies. Uh, We're we're a bit of uh, Lord of the Rings fans around my house. Uh, At some point, at least once a year, we're going to... We're going to sit down and we're going to watch the trilogy of Lord of the Rings. At some point in the year, we're going to, me and my boys will make time to, to do that. Well, there's, you know, the, the latest installment in that series of books is being put into a movie and, and being released. Uh, it's it's the part of the Hobbit movie, the uh, destruction of Smog or something like that, the demise of Smog. He's a, a dragon and he's about to be the next topic of adventure in this series. But, you know, when we go to see something like a movie, we are going to sit down and we're going to watch a two to three hour presentation. And that can, that can be a bit lengthy, but a two to three hour presentation. But how many of us know that it took a lot more than two to three hours for that to get produced? Right. What you're seeing that's been edited down to two to three hours is a lot, a lot, a lot of behind-the-scenes activity. Right? The Hobbit, I think, was 169 minutes in length, but it, it took 269 days just to film it. You know, if you sat down and you watched all the Lord of the Rings, you'd be looking at eight to nine hours on the screen of activity. But it it took four years just to film it. And that's not including set design, hiring the cast, editing the script, editing all the filming, going on location, travel, set up, people involved. You know, you see a few people who are on the screen, but you sit around after the movie and you watch that thing go. Nobody does this, but all these thousands of names that just go up and down the screen in the credits afterwards. Because those three movies took 10 years to produce. So there's behind-the-scenes activity that generates what we come in contact when we sit down to watch. And and today, I want to bring you behind the scenes in Acts chapter 16. Uh, I want to bring you there because that's where the passage brings us. It brings us behind the scenes. Normally, when we think about Acts 16, which is the, the latest installment in the trilogy of missionary journeys in the New Testament, right? Now, there's a trilogy of three journeys that Paul takes. We've already seen his first installment. This is the second of the three-part trilogy of Paul's missionary journeys. And when we think of missionary journeys, what comes to mind for me is guys going into unreached territories and preaching the gospel and people hearing the gospel for the first time and turning their lives to Christ and becoming Christians, getting saved, coming into a relationship with God. But in this passage here, we kind of don't see that. 
In fact, we go behind the scenes and we, we don't see the preaching of the gospel and we don't see uh, conversions. We, we're, we're behind the scenes here. But let me just at least give us a little bit of a map so we can locate ourselves here. Right? This is Paul's second missionary journey. And when we start pick up reading here, if you see over here to the right is Antioch, you go north, Tarsus. This is, this is the route that Paul's about to take. So he'll go through Tarsus, Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, and, and Pisidian Antioch, back through the places where Paul's already been, already preached the gospel. He's going back there. That's the agenda item here. And then he's going to meander, and I think meander is the right word when you read behind the scenes. It looks like this guy's, in our thinking, Paul's on this second journey. He's a missile shot to these locations. Uh, but when you read behind the scenes, he seems to be meandering trying to figure out how to do this and where God wants him to go. Paul's a little more human than we make him out to be. And so are the team here. And so they're going to get here to Pisidian Antioch and all of a sudden they're going to bend to the north. And in their bend to the north, they actually want to go to that far north word Bithynia and Pontus. They want to go to Bithynia, but God's going to redirect them. God's going to tell them no. So if you've ever felt like you were directed by God to do something, you started into that only to have it feel like, uh, God is not with me in this. I must have missed God. Well, join hands with the apostle Paul, him too, right? So you, you, that's not a freaky experience. It's a normal experience, but they go North and they're going to end up bending over here, go through Mysia down to Troas. They're going to cross the Aegean Sea and they're going to end up in Philippi. And so by the time you get to Philippi, you've, you know, you've gone 800 miles and you're 16 verses into the storyline here before we read about the first conversion on this journey. Lydia, one woman in the city of Philippi, will be the first person discussed in this second installment. Now, here's where our behind-the-scenes look is going to be helpful. Whether you know it or not, I know this about myself. I'm not all that interested in set design, set setup, go find the cast, write the script, edit that thing, go back, film it again, stop, film it again, stop, film it again. If you guys ever been on a movie set, uh, Gina and, and Grace had a chance to be on a movie set. They'd come home and they day after day after day, the same scene, the same two and a half minute scene in the movie gets shot for like two weeks every day over and over set it up over and over and over again. I, I, I'm not interested in that. I just want to see the final product. I want to kind of watch the highlight reel of all that happened. And you know, the reality is that's, that's how a lot of us feel about the Christian life. We want to live in the highlight reel. I want to do the amazing stuff. I want to experience deep affections for God. I, I, want, I want people to, to just jump up out of their wheelchair and experience healing. I want to be able to share the gospel with somebody and see them just come to Christ on the spot. I want to do and see amazing things in the kingdom of God. And you probably want to do that too. But there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes here that educates us that behind the scenes in your life, in your day-to-day mundane activity, behind the scenes at Lakeview Christian Center, there's a lot of stuff that makes for that two- to three-hour feature film. There's a lot that went on that nobody saw, nobody was maybe even paying attention to. But it's pretty important stuff. You don't get to the screen without all those things taking place. And we're going to see that today. So let's go back into... 
Acts chapter 16. I was going to highlight four behind the scenes looks. I don't think I'm going to get to four. I think I'm just going to do two. Uh, We'll move on from there. But let's look here first in Acts 16, chapter 1. Um, Chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a a Greek. And then they went on their way into these cities. Father, help us with encountering the reasons you recorded these events and you highlighted these stories. Lord, help us to see behind the scenes, not just in Paul's life, Timothy's life, this journey's existence, but in our own lives, in the ways in which you operate today, open our eyes to see what we need to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, there's, there's, there's going to be behind-the-scenes stories for everybody that gets mentioned in Scripture. We don't always get a chance to encounter them. But we've, we've met some interesting characters along the way here in the book of Acts. You know, we've read, met a man named Stephen. Remember Stephen? Stephen was just a guy, I remember telling you guys, Stephen was a guy in the fourth row in the church in Jerusalem. Stephen was just a normal believer in the church in Jerusalem. And you and I are still talking about him today. Because he was a man that God decided to use. He was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. And he went about and ministered and ended up giving up his life for the sake of the gospel. There was a story behind his life. The Apostle Paul, if you're ever wanting to see the greatest, perhaps, advertisement for the reality of the Christian faith, the Apostle Paul, this is a man who was the greatest proponent. He was more against Christianity than anybody in this room ever was, unless you can stand up and say how many people you killed who were Christians. So strongly he felt about the problem with Christianity. He was, he was zealous toward God in such a way that anybody who was zealous to this, for this thing called Christianity needed to die. That's how strongly he felt that Christianity was wrong. And yet he is saved and radically changed and becomes a lover of Jesus Christ and willing to put his own life on the line for the sake of the gospel. And then he comes into the church and there's a man named Barnabas who takes his hand and nobody else wants to get around Paul. Remember, there's, there's behind the scenes activity that gets us to seeing Paul's life. I mean, he could, have been, he could have been ostracized by the community in Jerusalem. People didn't have faith to believe that he was the real deal. But Barnabas did and stepped into his life and made a difference in his life. And now we bump into a man named Timothy. He's, he's a young man in this moment. But Timothy, unlike Barnabas, he's going to go on with Paul to the end. These two guys are going to partner together. He's going to be part of Paul's missionary journeys. He's going to be part of going back into churches in a pastoral way and strengthening those churches. He will, he will spend a good bit of time in the, in the church in Ephesus in the future. That's who Timothy is going to become. But behind the scenes, before you and I get a chance to encounter the finished product, Timothy, the amazing leader, Timothy, the influential man in the New Testament, Timothy, at some point there's behind the scenes stuff going on that that gets Timothy to where he is. 
Timothy's just a young man who gets saved in a small town where Paul is preaching the gospel. And a couple of years later, Paul's going to come back to that same town with a desire to take Timothy with him. And he's going to depart and leave everything and go with Paul. His family is going to bless that. Go be a part of the mission that these men are on. This dangerous mission that's getting them stoned and beat up and half killed from place to place. Timothy's going to say yes to that. Right? I put this in your notes. I want to read it carefully. I think it's needful for us to consider it accurately. There was and always will be a need for young leaders to emerge. For Timothy's to take their place, walk away from the safety of their personal world and be completely available to the purpose of God, to embrace the call to a life of war. That, that was true in this day, but it's normal. This is a normal in the Christian world. That's why we're studying the book of Acts. We're trying to rediscover normal because we've become very abnormal in the Christian world. This is normal. Right, and I want to I aim at ears here this morning. If, you, if you're 30 years old and under, this, this is normal. For young men to be considering, what might God be planning for you that just might derail lots of things that you're thinking about doing with your life? What might God have in mind that is risky, out of the box, wasn't predicted by your grandparents who said that you'd always grow up and be this, or your parents who said you'd always grow up and be that. But God stepped in and said, no, this is what you're going to do with your life. And this haunting little weird sense got inside of you that God was communicating something to you. See, for, for Timothy... It was a call into a life of war. And I think that's a good phraseology. Paul uses it on Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Probably made here in Acts chapter 16 as they laid their hands on Timothy and he went off into the mission field. Prophecies that were probably made at a young age over him. That by them you may wage the good Warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. Timothy, young person, do you wake up in the morning thinking that life is a war? That's what life is. Life is war. Get up this morning and fight in your life. Pursue the sword, Timothy, not the sofa in your existence. I know this is not just a young man verse. This is a verse that just kind of gets into the world of anybody who calls himself a Christian. Anybody who has an awareness. The lights have come on. There is a God who's eternal. He has made all things for himself and he is seeking to restore those things that have fallen away from him to himself. Every day of our existence, that is the agenda of God on this planet. Every day we wake up in the morning, there is a war. 
There's a war for God to accomplish that, and there's a war against that ever being accomplished. It's in every corner of your life. When was the last time you woke up to go to war? With a a wartime mentality. A view that today there there are battles to fight today. There will more than likely be casualties. There will be scary moments. You know, it's tomorrow's Veterans Day. You know, guys who have served in the armed forces and actually found themselves in harm's way. You know, they, they, they get up in the morning a little bit differently. They get up knowing live ammunition is going to be shot at me today. Surprises lay beside the road. That vehicle that's parked alongside the, the road. What is that thing? What, what's that empty pack sitting right there outside the camp? Every, everything becomes a suspicious concern when you recognize warfare is taking place around us. Now, in some sense, I'm saying, well, I don't want to make every, all of us paranoid about everything, but I do want to make us paranoid. I do want to install a healthy sense that not everything in this world is safe. There are things parked near your life. They're designed to blow up when you get close enough to them. There are issues that you will get alongside of that you had no idea how that thing was wired to take you down. That's the world that we live in. Timothy, wage the warfare. Fight the fight. Everybody in here in some way, whether you're a young young man like Timothy... You're just a Christian. Everybody in here is in the war and has to wake up with a sense of awareness that there is a war going on. Now, I want to say this about young, young people today in the Christian world. I, I see less of this Timothy factor now as a pastor than I have ever in the 20 years of being a pastor, I see less Timothys than ever. I, I don't bump into many under 30 guys who are significantly wrestling with this activity of ministry in the kingdom of God. Not just, not just wrestling, although I don't preclude this. Not just wrestling with the thought that has God called me to maybe be a pastor? I think a lot of guys should travel through those questions at some point in their walk. But just the sense of a high level of ownership of the ministry of God's truth into people's lives. I don't remember such a drought of seeing that in 20 plus years of being a pastor. It's become less and less a reality. And if the church has a future, if this church has a future, this is a very, very, very important thing for us as a church. Young men are willing to step into the uncomfortable unknown of considering that God would derail and reroute your life in ways that are unpredictable and unclear. How's that for a mouthful, huh? How many of us are willing to just stand before God and say, God, I'm willing for you to derail 
and reroute my life in ways that are unpredictable and unclear. I'm willing to step into the unpredictable and unclear. Nobody likes those two words. I want everything to be mapped out. I want it all to be crystal clear before I'll take my steps of faith. That's, a, that's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? If it is going to be faith, then it's not going to be crystal clear and spelled out. It's going to be a walk of faith. Right? Stepping out in faith without knowing how I will have the time, how I will have the money, how I will have the energy to do ministry in my life, to incorporate the advancement of the kingdom of God with words and with power, the explaining of the gospel to people, the helping along of young believers into a greater place of strength and safety, how I will do that, how I will have the time to do that, how I will have the preparation to do that, how I will have the energy to do that in the midst of, uh, of school. Right? You're in school. You've got a busy school schedule. You've got demands on you. You've got study times. You've got schedules and classes. How will I have time to do that? So the temptation is to do one or the other. To not see that during this season of my life as a young man, God is calling me to do both. God's calling me to figure out how to wrestle with that. may not look exactly the same than when I'm finished school, but I, I'm, I don't set this down. You don't set down warfare. You don't set down God calling you. How, how am I going to find the energy and the money and the time to do that with, with having babies? We're having babies, man. My, my wife and I were just having, we're having babies. I, I just don't know how I can do. I don't know how I can step out into that. I don't know how I can do anything more than what I'm doing. How to find the energy and the time and the resources in our lives to do ministry and do a job, to have a career, be devoted to something that, that God has given in your life. Listen, I'm, I'm not foreign to this. I had all those same questions in my own life. When I, was in, I went to school, I was in college, I got saved in high school, and I went to college. College was demanding for me. It took huge parts of my life. I'm just not smart enough to just sit in class and write two notes and take tests and do well. I had to study my brains out to do well in school. And yet the kingdom of God existed on college campuses. And so I'm figuring out how do I get involved in campus ministries? How do I get involved in the church while I'm in school? It was not an easy time frame. I sense the Lord was calling us to into ministry full time. And in April of, of 1993 was when I came into the, church as a pastor here and in July of 1993 we started having babies and we just kept having babies (laughs) and yet I gotta say there wasn't and at this point I say the season is different the thinking is different at that point there was no such thing as the idea that there is do ministry or do babies There, there wasn't this two different things I mean, we, we had our first child with all the weird glitches and challenges that having a first child creates, right? Moms that are in a panic, dads that are freaking out. We, we had all that stuff. Well, we, we had a, a, a child in July, and in less than about a week and a half later, I left to go do a missions trip in Mexico. 
left my wife by herself with a baby. <laughs> you don't get to get wrestled, uh, rescued from this stuff. I, I spent a bunch of years of my life from, from a senior in high school probably, even maybe a little bit before that, wrestling with the thought that God was calling me to be a, a pastor, whatever the heck that was. At that point, I didn't even know what that was, but there was something in me that, that felt like I, I should be open to that. I should consider that. And then I spent the next oh, 10 years wrestling with God. I'm, you know, I'm in school. I'm getting an engineering degree. Or should I, I went and visited Bible college. Do I go to a Bible college? Do I go to LSU? Do I drop out of LSU and go to a Bible college? That'll freak my parents out. They'll really buy into that real well. What do I do? I don't even know what a Christian's supposed to kind of look like at this point. I, I mean, I'm saved, but I, I've not been around a lot of Christians. So I, what, what do I do with this? And then soon I get an engineering degree, get involved in church, but this nagging sense won't go away. My wife and I discuss, do we, do I go, go to seminary? Do we sell the house? Just uproot, go to seminary. Uh, just, it just won't go away. And then where's the opportunity? And how the heck's the guy with an engineering degree ever going to end up being a pastor? How does that ever happen? God, what are you doing? Is this even you, God? Why do you do this kind of stuff? Why do you give me this nagging sense of do this, but there's no way to get there? I mean, I don't know how many yelling conversations inside my own head were going on with me just arguing. You can't get from here to there. You just can't get from here to there. A guy like me can't get from here to there. I don't know how many times I tried to teach God that. <laughs> and he just doesn't learn, you know? I guess when you know everything, there's no room for learning. But I thought I could make that clear to him. And it was... It, I don't look back on that season, on, on the one hand, with fond remembrance. It was a wrestling, difficult, questioning, uncertain, unpredictable time in my life. It went on for 10 years. I'm in a church. Is there any opportunities in this church? Will I be given any opportunities in this church? Well, it doesn't look like the church is growing enough for there to be opportunities. Am I in the wrong church? Should I go to a different church? He's wrestling through these things. If you're a young man here and you have any ideas about ministry, you're wrestling through things in your mind. Yes, you are. And, and there's no rescuing you from that. You shouldn't be rescued. As a matter of fact, more in here should be wrestling with how God may be calling you Maybe that's a full-time calling. Maybe it's just a, a greater calling than the one that you have right now. But you should be wrestling with that in our lives. That's normal. And then you have this Paul guy who shows up in Timothy's life and sort of takes the baton of Timothy and leads him into the next realm. There, can I just say this? It's normal. The Timothys of, of the church world need Paul's to take their hand. They, they need those who have a sense of stability and insight, walk with Christ, take the hand of those behind them, and lead them into something more than where they are. How many of you guys have, just, you don't have to stand up, but just raise your hands. If you've been saved for more than five years... All right, everybody with your hand up, you can take that hand... And you can reach out and grab somebody with it. You can grab a Timothy. You know, it doesn't take a Bible degree. It doesn't take you being saved forever. It just, it just takes you owning a sense of what discipleship is. 
That's all. You know, I, I got saved as a freshman in high school. I understood so little about anything. I just knew to read the Bible. That's about anything I needed to know. Read the Bible. And when I read the Bible, the Bible was this compelling force. When I, the more I read and saw in the Bible, the more I simply wanted to tell other people what I'd read and saw. It was really just a real simple formula. I would stare at stuff. It would go, wow, inside of me. And I would want to give that to other people. It's just simple mechanism. So I'm saved as a freshman in high school. By the time I'm a junior, I'm, I'm teaching a Bible study in someone's house. Now, it's probably a pathetic Bible study. It's probably not something that anybody should have driven to be a part of. Uh, and I don't, I don't even know how successful it was. I don't know that it, 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 was, it was accomplishing a whole lot for the glory of God. But there was something about encountering God and giving God away. Encountering God and giving God away, it just was like normal. It was like inhale, exhale, right? Does anybody have to tell you to exhale? Right? You have received much. Give much away. You have seen something of the kingdom. Give it away. Well, I haven't seen much. Well, then you don't have much to give away yet. Give away what you got. It doesn't have to be some complicated thing. But there are a bunch of Timothys who need some Pauls in their lives to take them by the hand. Christians need to get out of the idea that this is the only time where ministry in the people's lives is taking place. It's taking place when you create it. I didn't even know what it was to be a part of a church. But gathering together people who were young in the faith and who had some sense of wanting to grow, that kind of just made sense. Well, let's get together and study the Bible. There's nothing prohibiting anybody here from doing exactly that. You know people at work. You know people in your family. You know know fellow Christians. There There are Christians scattered all over this city. They're scattered all over the place. You know a bunch of Christians who've got... Next to nothing to do with the church. You know them. There's nothing prohibiting you from caring for them. From engaging them. From influencing them. That's what discipleship does. David Platt in the forward for the book Multiply says, From the beginning of Christianity, the natural overflow of being a disciple of Jesus has always been to make disciples of Jesus. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. From the start, God's design has been for every single disciple of Jesus to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples until the gospel spreads to all peoples. Francis Chan, who's written this book, Multiply, interestingly says, unfortunately, disciple making has become the exclusive domain of pastors and missionaries. Salesmen sell, insurance agents insure, and ministers minister. At least that's the way it works in most churches. Paul saw the church as a community of redeemed people in which each person is actively involved in doing the work of the ministry. The pastor is not the minister, at least not in the way we typically think of a minister. The pastor is the equipper. And every member of the church is a minister. Most Christians can give a number of reasons why they cannot or should not disciple other people. I don't feel called to minister. I just have too much on my plate right now. I don't have time to invest in other people. I don't know enough. I have too many issues of my own. As convincing as these excuses may seem to us, Jesus commands don't come with exception clauses. He doesn't tell us to follow 
unless we're busy. He doesn't call us to love our neighbors unless we don't feel prepared to do that. But that's all legit in the Christian world today. If I'm busy, I, I got a legit reason why not to do these things. Can I tell you? The day of being busy is never going to stop. Never going to stop. If there's an epidemic happening in the body of Christ today, it's the epidemic of busyness. And I keep looking at this as a pastor going, Lord, at what point do we get past this season? And you know what? I don't think we will ever get past. I mean, because I know right now, if I, everybody stood up and said, how many of y'all feel like your life is up to here in stuff and activity, people, and nonstop, and I'm about to drown? And see, what's that doing? Because that's, that's a little new for us. We've always felt that way a little bit, but maybe more like about neckline. Now, it's here. And that's how life feels for almost every one of us right now. You're not alone if you feel that way. And what we're waiting to do, we're waiting for the tide to go out so that we can get back to being Christians. Can I just break some news to you? The tide is never going to go out in your life. I don't foresee any way that this world will ever figure out how to slow up. It is inventing ways to speed up only. And you and I are like anybody living in that reality. It's never going to slow up. If you're waiting for life to feel like this again, and then I'll be a minister. Then I'll make room for people. Then I'll get around God. Then I'll influence people for the kingdom of God. When it gets to here, you're never going to be a Christian. It's never going to make room for that. Please stop waiting for it. Figure out a way to be a Christian when life feels like this. It's right here. Figure out how to be a Christian in that moment. Because it's never going to change, guys. But it, it is. It is eating us for lunch. It is changing the way the church exists in enormous ways. Listen, when I first came to this church in 1983, church was 80 people, maybe. It proceeded to grow from 80 to about 60 in the next year and a half. There, was a, there were two pastors when I came in 1983. One of them was a younger pastor. He was kind of youth pastor focused. Um, early on, I spent some time getting to know him. And, and he was influential in, in my life at that point. But looking back on my walk, the most influential disciple-making influence did not come from a guy with a title. It came from a guy in the church. He had no title. He just had this weird idea that Christians disciple other Christians. He lived his life that way. So he made room in his life for people like me and others. Take my hand. Help me walk. Help me step, answer questions, help me think, read the Bible, answer questions from the Bible, invite me to help influence others. I just grew up thinking that that's what Christians do. Christians take what they own and they influence others with it. It was just, I hadn't seen anything different. He was the only Christian I kind of knew at that point. 
And that's how life was. That's how Christians were. Christians weren't sitting around waiting for a program. Christians weren't sitting around waiting for a meeting. Christians were just busy being Christians with each other. Study the Bible, share the Bible. Get into conversations, bump into questions that you have no idea about. And try to figure out how to be humble in that moment. (laughs) And then go find the answer and come back and talk to that person further. It's... It wasn't that bizarre and that weird, but you know this is this is where Timothy's come from. That's that's why Timothy was the guy sitting there when Paul says, "I want Timothy to come with me." Timothy has been saved a couple of years. I'm just curious what got Timothy from salvation to two and a half, three years later, when Paul comes and shows up and says, "Hey, you, I want you to leave everything and come follow me." Timothy, at that point, I think I can guarantee you was not a nominal Christian. Wait, so you're inviting me. Let me see if I'm getting this right. Uh, You, the dude with the the stone scars all over your face. I remember what happened the last time you were here, Paul. You want me to come with you. And the first order of business is what? You want me to be circumcised? (laughs) Dude, I'm a grown man. (laughs) That doesn't sound very inviting at all. So I'm pretty sure this Timothy guy was not like this nominal, sofa-sitting you know, Christian who had no zeal for God. But here comes Paul, and Paul says, hey, dude, leave your family, leave your home, come venture with me. It's unpredictable. I'm not even sure. I think we're going to Bithynia, only to find out we're not going to Bithynia. We're going somewhere else. I can't promise you what's going to happen in the future. Later on, I'll be able to tell you, but I know that stones and afflictions await me everywhere I go. Timothy, come on. And Timothy is in a place as a young Christian to say, yes, I will accompany you. I've got faith for that. Somebody besides Paul helped that boy get from where he was to where he could say yes to Paul. And it wasn't Paul. Because Paul wasn't there. Somebody else sitting with him. Certainly was his mom and his grandmother. We learn about them. But it was people in the church who took Timothy by the hand and made such a difference. We need some guys to take people's hands. Let me just cover one more behind-the-scenes look here. In verse 4, it says, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for uh, uh, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem, right? We're in Acts 16. Acts 15 was the big council meeting, the confusion between Jews and Gentiles. Some of y'all sat on different sides of the room. Remember all this? Well, they made a decision as to what needed to be taught to the churches in these regards. And so that's what they're doing. They're taking these decisions back to the churches to explain to them how they're to live in light of these things. In verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith. They were strengthened in the faith. Here's the byproduct of churches that are strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Do not ever make this mistake, church. Do not ever make this mistake. Do not ever cut that verse in half and think that churches that are not strengthened in the faith are capable of increasing in numbers daily. No, they're not. 
It is healthy churches that experience the presence and the life-transforming power of God in the truth of the word of God that are capable of God adding to them. They were strengthened in the faith and they were increasing daily. Now remember, and I want to highlight this, I want to highlight this, and, and if I can install panic in your life, I want to install panic in this moment. Because this is the reason that the Apostle Paul is on this trip. His second missionary journey, remember it starts, we already reviewed this with Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15 verse 36. This is where the second journey starts out, right? Now when I say missionary journey, where does your mind go? It's a mission. It's missionary. When I say missionary, you think lost people hearing the gospel getting saved. Anybody not thinking that when you hear mission? That's what a mission is. There's the church and then there's the mission. The mission is when you go out into the lost world and you preach the gospel and people become Christians. That's the mission. This is Paul's second missionary journey. Why was he taking this trip? Verse 36 of chapter 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of God and see how they are. Verse 41. And he went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. Why is Paul on this trip? He's going back. Now what's interesting is when he goes back, remember that map, when he goes back, you know, he kind of goes north and go through Tarsus and Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And okay, that's where he'd been before. So he just goes back to where he had been before. It's not until after he's back in this region that it, then, he, then he decides, let's go north to where we've never been before. But the first inclination for the missionary journey was we need to go back and strengthen the faith of the churches. We need to go back. We need to go back because they need to have their faith strengthened. So we need to go back and do that. And that's not a foreign thought. As a matter of fact, it's a dominating thought in the book of Acts, right? Look at these verses with me real quick. Acts 11 verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. This is early on. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful. Not become faithful. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. All right? You're in Jerusalem. Still got our map? All right, you're way down here in Jerusalem. Way north up here in Antioch, news travels back that the gospel has gone to Antioch and, and conversions have been taking place and there are new believers in Antioch. That's the trigger mechanism for Barnabas to get sent. Listen, I'm not trying to downplay anything here. I, I hate when people do that to the Bible. They make one thing in the Bible more important than the other one. So I, I'm not trying to downplay, but this is what sometimes Christians wait to get jazzed about. This is what they, they wait to get all lit up. You can stand in Jerusalem and say, guys, there's, there's people in Antioch who don't know Jesus. They're facing a Christless eternity. They're going to die and go to hell. We need to send someone to Antioch. And the church can say, yes, we do. Yes, we do. How much does it cost? Where's the prayer meeting for that? 
I'm on board. That's important. You know what? That's important. But if you're reading the same Bible I'm reading, why did Barnabas go to Antioch? Because there already were believers there. And a priority, a trigger mechanism for the leadership in Jerusalem was get Barnabas up to Antioch to strengthen the faith that God has begun in these people. This must be an important deal. And it's all throughout the New Testament. Acts 14 verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. They're already believers. Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What was the priority in that meeting? It was to take a gathering of believers somewhat like this one, And encourage and strengthen faith and stand as a God-given leader and teacher and say, let me, can I teach you about potholes? Can I teach you about landmines in your life so that when they come, you will know how to avoid them. And when tribulation comes, and let me explain to you what tribulation is going to be like, how it's going to feel, when it's going to touch your life so that when it happens, you're not blown up by it. You're not scratching your head going, is there, I really thought there was a God, but all of a sudden life has become hard and discouraging and I bumped into sin and my own brokenness and the effects of sin in other people's lives. I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. How many of y'all have ever felt like that in your life? Well, apparently apostolic ministry knew that would happen. So they send people back to Christians to help them be aware This is what you need to know in order to live your life and survive in this fallen world. Acts 15, verse 32. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened. Those two words seem to get together, don't they? Encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Later on in the book of Acts 18, verse 23. After spending some time there. He departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So if you're not careful, you read the book of Acts and you think, oh, missionary journey number one, missionary journey number two, missionary journey number three. Paul was just going from one place to another, introducing the gospel to people and bringing them to faith in Christ. When you slow up and you read, you find out an apostolic priority was to come behind those conversions and strengthen faith and strengthen faith and strengthen faith. And some of these are multiple visits to the same places. When you see the map for the third journey, you're going to notice that it keeps running over the same ground over and over and over again. Because apparently, it's really, really important that if you're a Christian, that your faith gets strengthened and you get encouraged. Apparently, that's a big deal. To the apostles. I wrote this in your outline. Giving and receiving direction and doctrinal clarification is vital to the future of the church. Attending meetings that are focused on teaching and fellowship so that faith is strengthened is essential to your life as a Christian and to our future mission. So much so that Paul puts himself in danger to go back to places where he might lose his life. And he went back and did that, not because, well, there are unbelievers there, 
although there were unbelievers there, and he would have the opportunity to minister to them, but his impetus to go back was for the believers that were there to strengthen them, and I'm willing to put my life on the line for the sake of the brethren being strengthened in their faith. Okay, why, why is this so important? Well, I installed a little, I wish we had a sign. Maybe we need a sign like this. Maybe we can have Peter, somebody build us a sign and stick it on, your, on the exit on the way out to church. Warning, faith hazard ahead. I promise you, on the road of your walk, there is a faith hazard coming towards you. You are going to enter into a faith hazard zone. That location, those events, those people, that timing is going to attack corrosively your faith. Promise you that will happen, right? Daily life in a fallen world, the vulnerabilities of a fallen body, the active presence of a deceptive enemy, and the passions of the flesh produce a diminishing and corrosive effect on your faith. That's what you're made of. That's what this world is made of. That's just the gravitational pull of this world. On a daily basis, something is pulling your faith down all the time. It is constantly acting on it. It, There there aren't days when it's on and days when it's off. Just remind yourself, if you're not floating off of planet Earth, it's because gravity is always turned on. The pull of fallenness on your faith is always on as well. Remember that next time you take a step and you don't float off. Next time you jump as high as you can and you just return right back down to where you started. It's because the gravitational pull never gets turned off. It is pulling your faith down at every moment of your life. And if that's true, then the question becomes, what are you doing to strengthen and encourage your faith? Because if you leave it alone, the gravity will pull it down and flatten it out. What, I'm serious, this is, please consider this for a moment with me. What are you doing to strengthen your faith? It, it takes great faith to live life for the glory of God and to advance the great commission. It takes great faith to do that. The areas of life that are real to you, it takes great faith to live in them or they will discourage you profoundly. They will pull your faith down no matter what season you're in in here right now. I can remember just... The gravitational pull of being a single man in the church. Just the, just the sense of depressing sense of what's my, what's my future? Will I be married? Do, am I going to have a family? Just wrestling through that. Some of you can remember those days. Some of you are in a totally different place on the other end of the spectrum where physically your bodies are changing and there's, there's effects on you and you, you are discouraged by the fact that the aches and the pains and the limitations and what you can't remember is all just descending on you. And there's this pull. It takes great faith to live for the glory of God. That was true then and it's true now. Listen, it, it, it takes, when Peter's sharing about, when Bill's sharing last week, it takes great faith to give financially to the mission of the kingdom of God. It, it, it takes faith to do that. 
Do you know how many things are screaming at you money-wise in your life? I mean, they're screaming at me. Everything's getting more expensive. How do I afford this? I've got this bill, that bill. The, the, the cost of education. Oh my gosh, the cost of higher education. How am I going to afford for my kids to go to school? How am I going to afford to be able to prepare them for the future? What about the medical bills that we have? How are we ever going to pay that off? And what about, what about the broken air conditioner? And the other appliances that are, that are like dinosaurs around here. What are, what are we going to do when they break? I mean, I, what about, you know, I mean, you got Medicare and all the problems with Obamacare and everything's about to get more expensive for all of us. And then, then there's, there's 401ks that have crashed and goodness knows you can't find a good investment that'll pay you more than 3% these days. And what on earth? How am I going to retire? How, how, Keith, how can I afford to give, man? That was my list, by the way. I don't know what your list is. That's my list. Those are the things that argue with me to say, Keith, you can't afford to give. It takes faith to stare at that and say, yes, I can. But the gravity of this world keeps wanting to pull that out of me. I know it wants to pull it out of you too. It takes faith. It takes faith and courage to spend your time and energy on Bible study and fellowship. Right? Opening the word of God up, finding time to get in it on a daily basis. Joining with others in fellowship and in the mission of the church together. It takes time to do that. And I I mean, I've got a hundred things on a to-do list that are just waiting for me. Right? I mean, I, I... I've needed a task list, a to-do list, right? I've needed one because there's just too many things to remember, but it's, you know, I think task list is short for task master list. I don't know how you are. I wake up in the morning and, and it's like I can hear these hoofbeat sounds, the horde of emails. I made the mistake of sleeping last night. Oh my gosh, you know. I didn't get to that pile of emails at the end of the day. I didn't even open them. And then there's last night and more of them came. And then, you know, goodness, I'm a few minutes late this morning. How, who knows how many are lining up at the door? I just feel like I'm going to open up life and <laughs> emails. And I, I don't even do social networks. So I don't know how you guys manage that. Just emails are like a herd of elephants running at me every morning. So, I I mean, I've had to fight this. I've got this temptation before my foot hits the floor. You know, there's my phone on the nightstand charging. And I've recently just decided, even though you now got one of those stupid, they're not smartphones, they're stupid phones. And they they have a little feature. They have this little thing when you turn it on, it it lets you know everything you've missed. (laughs) Like your phone kind of has this little screen that features uh, while you weren't paying attention to me. Just this whole list of stuff. Right? There's texts and emails and reminders and calendar items. You can just kind of thumb through it for like an hour. It's like, oh my gosh, this all happened while I was sleeping? Don't talk to me. And so I just have made a decision before I get out of bed in the morning. It's like I pick the thing up and when you unplug it, it comes on. It's designed, right? You unplug it and it, and it begins to speak to you. <laughs> Keith, the list is long. Aren't you curious? <laughs> and so I'm fighting that and say, no, no. The first thing I'm going to lay my eyes on is the Bible. I'm going I'm to look at the word of God before you discourage me, you stinking herd of elephants. <laughs> right. But who's got time to do that? 
Who's got, time, who's got time to be in this meeting this morning? Heck, I mean, there's stuff going on. You probably got people coming over for the game. You should have stayed home. You should have got your house ready. You should have cooked or prepared or something. Goodness, Sunday. I mean, it's a, got a lot happening on Sunday. You don't have time to be here. A lot of us don't have time to be here. Well, That's an interesting problem. This is an interesting problem we're having. This is what I'm going to call the more and less problem. We have, you know, when we did that census last year, you guys will remember obnoxiously being asked to fill out the card over and over and over and over and over again. Well, here's what we discovered as a result of doing that sort of thing. There are more people that come into this building than ever. But there are a diminishing number every Sunday of any, all of them being here on a weekly basis. So it's like we've just become this spread out, thinned out church. And the more I've researched it, that's what every church is becoming like. A bunch of people who just consistently can't show up for anything. They just can't do consistent anymore. That's just a fact, right? Sam Rayner published this article for Church Leader about church attendance continues to decline. He says, people do not wake up one Sunday and decide to leave their church. They phase out. They begin by attending less frequently. This problem is pervasive throughout the North American church. While myriad individual spiritual reasons exist why people attend less, decreasing frequency of attendance is the single biggest macro reason for overall church declines. It's just we just come less. It used to be normal that people that this is church, this was holy ground, Sunday morning was holy ground. And people were here four out of four weeks. And the real slackers were here three out of four weeks. Now, you stop and, and visit your own attendance in your own mind and think, okay, over the last couple of months, how many times have I missed? And it's lots of reasons. You know, nobody's like, well, I couldn't come, Keith. I had a big drug deal going down, all right? I mean, <laughs> it's not those kind of reasons. We were traveling. We just had a busy schedule that weekend. We had a special event and somebody had this thing going on. The kids had a soccer tournament. And it just, it's a bunch of stuff that doesn't scream at us. You are wasting your life. It doesn't tell us that. It just feels like normal stuff. But, but here's, here's where the, the great, huge concern comes in. The, the apostles in the New Testament thought it important enough to risk their lives to gather believers together to strengthen their faith. Apostles were willing to go and gather believers, putting their lives in jeopardy because they were so concerned about the health of people who were existing believers who needed to have their faith strengthened if they ever were going to make it to the end. It takes faith to live your life. It takes strong, vibrant, crazy, insane, risk-taking faith to live the life that God's calling you to. Now, if you want some dumbed-down, doesn't-make-a-difference, get-to-heaven-with-no-treasure version of the Christian life, that one doesn't take much faith. But to live for the glory of God, it takes some faith to do that. To... To live in relationships that have become unrewarding and unpleasant and difficult and challenging. Take some faith. 
people are bailing. Christians, Christians are bailing on relationships left and right. Jumping out of marriages because it's become hard. We are, we are wired and built by this culture to find the things that we like and avoid the things we don't like. Well, dude, hang around anybody for a little while and they will, they will grow the list of things you don't like. I met with somebody recently. I said, you know, just give that person a little bit more time. I said, you know, when you, when you first meet folks, best foot forward, careful impressions. Nobody just speaks off the top of their head. So, you know, it's all likable stuff with a little bit of dislikable stuff. And then over time, this is what happens. There's less likable stuff. They let their guard down and there's more just obnoxious stuff coming out of their mouth and their attitudes and they're lazy. And, you know, they used to put their best foot forward now. They don't even have a best foot anymore. They don't even walk, much less put their best foot forward. They're just lazy when it comes to you. And we just walk away from relationships. We walk away from each other. People just bounce from church to church. I, you know, I, I can run you out of here in no time. I'm serious. And you won't even come ask me, Keith, what exactly do you mean by that? You, know, you said this the other Sunday. You made this statement the other Sunday. I'm not sure I understood it. It didn't quite sound like everything you've said before, but... That doesn't even happen. Now people hear something. First time, I I think he said this. They don't even stop and think. Well, that sounds like it contradicts all the 88 other things I think he said about that. I think he said this. I don't think I can be a part of a church where people think like that. And do do you just take the effort to pick the phone up? Say, hey, can I get an appointment with you? I just had a question about something that you believe. I think you taught this the other day. Hey, where are you coming from with that? No. That's too much trouble. I'll just go somewhere else to church. Really? And you're going to advance the kingdom with that kind of value system inside of you. Well, you know, it's just really awkward to come talk to leaders, you know. Just I had a few bad experiences, or at least I heard about other people who had a few bad experiences, and they came to talk to their pastor, and the pastor yelled at them. And so I've just never done that before. Wow, that's enormous faith on your part. I don't have the faith to come have a conversation because I think it might not go my way. Really? That's all you got? That's all the faith you got? Please, somebody explain to me how we're ever going to love one another as Christ loves you. You and I were obnoxious to God. Him coming to have a conversation with us was like having a debate with an imbecile. An imbecile that would not be convinced that he was wrong. I mean, I've argued with God my whole life, haven't you? I'm just disagreeable. I can take 20 years of faithfulness to God and just me have a shadow of a problem coming in me. Just I just throw it all out the window. Oh, I'm going to be abandoned. It's all over. God, why do you do this? How could you do this? I thought you were good. Uh, well, I thought I was too, Keith. You were this wretched, obnoxious little punk when I saved you. And really, did all these things in your life, can we go back and revisit a few of them? And then look, I picked the Bible up and look who I've been in all these moments. And, and you, that might happen. It's not even certain that it's going to happen and you're ready to bail on me. And God stands in there and has a conversation with me, committed to love me in that moment. But, but let me just get wind that you might not agree with me on something. And I can't have that conversation. Do you know why? Because it takes faith to live the Christian life. It takes guts. It takes risk to live the Christian life. 
Right, so if you want to know what I'm concerned about, it's when I look out in the church and I see in covenant groups, I see our gatherings that are intended to strengthen and encourage faith that desperately needs to be strengthened and encouraged. And I see the attendance for a small group ministry, just of those who signed up, 60, 65%. That means 40% of people who said they would come to a small group can't make it work. I look out here on Sunday mornings. You know, we weren't having the inconsistency problem until about a year and a half ago on Sunday mornings. And I, I know right now in this room, this is why Bill was going to do that announcement again this week, because I, we know 40% aren't here this morning. 40% of the church isn't here this morning. I'm talking about really fringe people. Just 40% of the church is just busy doing stuff. But this is a meeting to encourage and strengthen faith. Do, do you think you can make it through without that? Come on. You think you can do this Christian life without that? Because if you can, please explain to me why the Apostle Paul was willing to kill himself, Timothy, Silas, and anybody else with him to make sure he got back into the lives of Christians and strengthened their faith. Why was this man willing to do that? Because this this must be pretty important. This must matter a great deal. This must matter more than a bunch of other things that seem to matter in our lives. Because I'm pretty sure I've, I've never walked away from a soccer game full of faith. I, I didn't have the ability to see a God who raised people from the dead and can step into my moment in incredible power uh, because I chose to do something else with a busy weekend. Listen, it's... We, we've got to stop legitimizing busyness as the reason to just short circuit everything that God does in our lives to make us deep and affected by him and see a big God living in our world in an amazing way. Eric, go ahead and come up, buddy. Let's pray together. Father, this is a moment you have designed for our lives. This moment this morning, this preaching moment was designed for our lives. It's it's supposed to feel like we just experienced preaching. So Lord, I, I pray that this room right now is full of teaching insight. I pray that where appropriate, Lord, it has... It has produced an exhorting of the soul to run toward things that matter. Lord, I pray where appropriate, it has produced correction, rebuke. Because it's about the future of our faith. It's about us being strengthened and encouraged to fulfill your purposes. Lord, I pray this morning there there would be a sober installment of this reality that as we walk from this place, as we walk in the daily walk of our lives, there is a giant sign on the highway of our life that says, warning, faith hazard ahead. And that we would be prepared, Lord. We would value 
the word spoken to us and the word affecting our souls and our, our fellowship with one another and being in a place where teaching is occurring. Well, we're not safe. We're not safe in this world. Or this gathering right here is not safe. Those who are not here this morning are not safe. Lord, I pray this morning for an anointing by the Spirit on our lives. I pray for the emergence of Paul's in this room, Lord. Men who've lived life for the glory of God. Women who have grown in their faith and their understanding to have the grace and faith in their life to reach back and take somebody else by the hand. To not be satisfied with living a life that doesn't involve making disciples. Personally, making disciples. Lord, I pray you'd awaken in our hearts the reality that if you've shown us something about yourself and something about your word, then we have something to share with others. We'd not just be waiting for someone with a title to do that. We would do that, Lord. You would awaken the Paul's the men and women who would come before others and lead them and influence them. Lord, you would awaken Timothy's. Oh, Lord, would you break through the famine of young men who are wrestling with a sense of calling and burden from God. A sense that haunts them. A sense that messes with their plans. Since it makes them ask hard questions about God, what are you doing? How are you directing me? What do you want me to put my hands to? How do I find time for that? They are wrestling, God. Would you awaken the wrestling this morning? Would you awaken in our church wrestling? Or would you keep us from drifting down the river of busyness, just being taken to the next place, dumped on the edge of the bank, the next stop, the next bend in the river? Lord, we, we, want, we want to live in a place that demands faith in our lives. So God, I pray, I pray this morning. This word, this behind the scenes look at Acts chapter 16, that which went before all this other stuff we're going to see. Lord, thank you for the movie highlights we're about to watch. Thank you for Lydia. Thank you for other conversions that are taking place. Thank you for churches that get planted throughout this region. Lord, thank you for what you were doing behind the scenes to make that day ever take place. Lord, would you awaken us to not just be Christians in the two to three hour film moment, but God, to live for your glory behind the scenes in our lives every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up together and Eric's gonna close us with a song.